0: Hey folks, Brian here. Before we get started, I just want to ask those who are listening who have not done so to please like, rate, review, and subscribe to the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. And to those who have already done so, thank you very much and please tell a friend. Now then, on with the show. This is episode number 21 of the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. Okay, let's catch you up to speed. Um, This is a re-recording of episode 21. Uh, Just to give you guys full disclosure, uh, I've recorded my last one in the middle to third week in December, just before or just after Christmas if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Right after that, I got sick. (laughs) Very sick. Um, it's that flu virus that had been going around, and it knocked me on my butt for about two weeks, two and a half weeks, something like that. Um, just at the tail end of it, I recorded episode 21 the first time, but... The sound quality and the fact that my voice was not quite 100%. To be completely honest, it's still not. But I'll take 90% over the 70 to 75% that it was when I recorded it the first time. Let's see what else happened. Um, Yeah, I did go to the arcade in Brighton on the 15th of December. And also, um, two weeks ago... As of this recording, it is now, what, February 8th? Uh, two weeks ago, um, I went to Offworld Arcade in downtown Detroit. I do have a arcade um, rundown and review coming, so stay tuned. Um, those are a little bit further in the future. I think they're somewhere in the 30s. Um, so, yeah, uh, everyone just stay tuned. Those are coming. As... Um, I have the money and time available, I'm going to go to a couple of other places in downtown Detroit, and a couple places in the Detroit area that I have found through some internet searching, and with some help from my friend Edgar, thanks Edgar, I owe you one. Um, I will be going to these places, seeing what's going on, playing some games, and of course giving you an arcade review and rundown well reverse those two you know what it is <laughs> the rundown comes before the review of course okay um so yeah i mean i went to Offworld arcade and i had a really good time actually um considering it was in between my main job and my side hustle um that was on a saturday afternoon um I spent about, I'd say probably about two, two and a half hours in that arcade, and I had a pretty good time. It was It was worth the money. It was worth the trip. There's another place in downtown, De- Detroit called Ready Player One. <laughs> yeah, not really that much of a connection to the movie or the book, right? Um, I plan on going there. There aren't there have been a lot of bad reviews about the place but I'm still going to go there just to see what's going on and see if all the negative attention it's been getting is justified. So, as always, stay tuned. And I do have an email. Once again, it's from Mike Stewart, but it's an email this time, not a voicemail, so I will read it. He says, Hey Brian, good show as always, and I'll try the email this time around as opposed to voicemail. I enjoyed episode 20's coverage of the Berserk Arcade game. Though I never played its sequel, I was shot, run over, and wall-electrified many times by this game. Yeah, weren't we all? The synth voice was what drew me. At the time of the early 80s, it stood out in that regard at Aladdin's Castle in Greenville, Mississippi. The only other synth game I recall at that time was Wizard of War, and it ate my tokens with frightful regularity as well. Yeah. (laughs) It ate my quarters and tokens too, Mike, that's for sure. And Wizard of War is going to be on a uh, strategy and are you experienced segment, so stay tuned for those uh, to continue the email. Uh, He says, Do you know of an arcade game from the late 80s, early 90s called Attacks, spelled A-T-A-X-X? It was a video board game where you played sort of a checkers Only the pieces were weird alien goop, and when you put a piece down, it turned any enemy pieces directly next to it into your colored pieces. Of course, the opponent's pieces did the same thing. It was at the 7-Eleven I worked at, and since I worked graveyard shifts, I got to play it a lot when things were slow. But I've never seen it anywhere else, nor met anyone who's ever seen it, nor read about it anywhere. Help me, Obi-Wan Brian, you're my only hope, (laughs) Mike. No, Mike, you didn't have to go that far. Um... I do remember seeing Attacks... I mean, basically, it's the arcade version of Othello. Um, I remember seeing it... Um, I can't remember where. I think it was in Florida somewhere. I just remember seeing it, looking it up and down for a couple of minutes and moving on to something else that w- w- caught my interest. Um, yeah, I mean, sh- I'm going to have to go into emulation just to see, uh, just to see, uh, what the game's about and everything, because, yeah, I mean, I remember it vaguely, but I don't remember playing it or anything like that. Um, I mean, if you're talking late 80s, early 90s, as you'll hear in episode 22, when I go into the top 10s for 1989, um you know, most of the arcades that I went to started closing down, and, you know, things were just starting to really look bleak in a video gaming sense, in an arcade sense, in my hometown. You know, but yeah, I vaguely remember seeing Attacks, but I never played it. I'm pretty certain of that. So, you know, I'm sorry to disappoint you, Mike, on that one. Okay, Uh, just like Mike, you can drop an email to the show if you have any questions about a game that you've seen or played and you weren't sure about or whatever it may be you know positive criticism anything like that you know like i said just don't be mean you know whatever you got to say you can say it without, without being a prick um the email address is arcadeaddictbrian all one word at gmail.com also there is a voicemail number for the show, which Mike usually uses, but he decided to throw me a curveball this time. (laughs) Uh, The phone number is 734-743-2433. Also, I do have social media up and running as we speak. Uh, Let's see. On Facebook, all you have to do is go in the search bar and type in uh, Confessions of an Arcade Addict. It should take you straight to the page. There is also a... um, I forget what it's called, uh, a group page, I think, for the podcast. So you can uh, meet with like-minded people and talk about video games or something involving the show. I do check those areas every so often. On Twitter, you can get a hold of me at arcadeaddict_b. underscore B. On Instagram, it's at ArcadeAddictBrian. Tumblr.com is Tumblr.com slash block slash Confections of an Arcade Addict. So... There are multiple ways for you to get a hold of the show if you want to do so. I'm here for you. If you got a question, comment, anything that comes to mind, just hit me with it and we'll see what we can do about it. Alrighty then, let's see, we have a rather information jam-packed show today, so let's get right on to it. Let's go into Are You Experienced? I'm too old for this. Hiding in front seats like a teenager. Popey, oh, I think I'm getting too old for this stuff. I'm getting too old for this. Listen, you was born too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. We're getting, getting too old for this. Lying red ass in the heather chasing other men's cattle. I'm getting too old for this sort of thing. Maybe we're getting too old for this. What do you think, huh? I'm not too old for this shit. I'm not too old for this shit. You will not. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. Like we're we're not, not too old for this shit. like you believe We're not too old for I'm this shit. we not too old for this I'm not gonna shit. buy a hemorrhoid cookie. We're not too old for this shit. Are you experienced? Kung Fu Master. <laughs> this game, I'm telling you. um, Yeah, this one was just one of those games that um, I really dug when it first came out, um, and I still dig it to this day. It's one of the most fun beat-em-ups. It's one of the first true and honest real beat-em-ups that came out uh, for the arcade, and it spawned a ton of like-minded games, leading to, you know, one of the ultimate beat-em-ups, Final Fight, and going on from there. But yeah, this is one of the first ones to start it. Okay... Uh, reading from wikipedia okay Kung Fu master is a side-scrolling beat-em-up game produced by irem as an arcade game in 1984 and distributed by data east in north america the game was initially released in japan under the title spartan x as a tie-in based on the jackie chan film wheels on meals which was also distributed under the name spartan x in japan However, the game has no bearing on the plot of the film outside of the names of the main protagonist and his girlfriend, allowing Irem to export the game without the license by simply changing the title. Smart. (laughs) Uh, The player controls Thomas, the the titular Kung Fu Master, as he fights his way through the five levels of the Devil's Temple in order to rescue his girlfriend, Sylvia, from the mysterious crime boss known as Mr. X. Kung Fu Master is regarded as the first beat-em-up video game. It had an NES port titled Kung Fu, which which sold 3.5 million cartridges. Uh, the arcade game also inspired a 1988 French film of the same name. The player controls Thomas with a four-way joystick and two attack buttons to punch and kick. That's not true. That's eight, That's an eight-way joystick, not four. <laughs> played this game long enough to know it without even thinking about it. Um, okay, unlike... More conventional side-scrolling games, the joystick is used not only to crouch but also to jump. Punches and kicks can be performed from a standing crouching or jumping position. Punches are awarded more points than kicks and do more damage, but their range is shorter. Underlings encountered by the player include grippers who grab Thomas and drain his energy until shaken off, knife throwers who can throw at two different heights and must be hit twice, and tom-toms, short fighters who can either grab Thomas or somersault to strike his head when he is crouching. On even-numbered floors, the player must also deal with falling balls and pots, snakes, poisonous moths, fire-breathing dragons, and exploding confetti balls. The Devil's Temple has five floors, each ending in a different boss, described as Sons of the Devil at the start of the game. In order to complete a floor, Thomas must connect enough strikes to completely drain the boss's energy meter. He can then climb the stairs to the next floor. Thomas has a fixed time limit to complete each floor. If time runs out or his meter is completely drained, the player loses one life and must replay the entire floor. Upon completing a floor, the player receives bonus points for remaining time and energy. The boss of the fifth floor is Mr. X, the leader of the gang that kidnapped Sylvia. Once he is defeated, Thomas rescues Sylvia and the game restarts at a higher difficulty level. The game was produced for IREM by Takashi Nishiyama, who also created IREM's 1982 arcade hit, Moodin Patrol, and later designed the original 1987 Street Fighter at Capcom before leaving to run SNK's video game development division, creating the Neo Geo Arcade System Board and its games like Fatal Fury, King of Fighters, Art of Fighting, The King of Fighters 94, and Samurai showdown there as well as several of their successors so uh, Nishiyama-san is one of those game creators who he might not get as much notoriety as some of the other Japanese game developers but his stamp on history is pretty wide-reaching pretty far-reaching you know I mean, just looking just looking at that lineup and all the games he designed and helped design, yeah, he's definitely part of video gaming history. To continue, uh, the game was originally based on Bruce Lee's 1972 movie Game of Death, with the five-level Devil's Temple reflecting that movie setting of a five-level pagoda with a martial arts master in each level. However, the title was changed during development to make it a tie-in to Jackie Chan's Spartan X. Uh, Kung Fu Master was ported to the Atari 2600, 7800, Amstrad CPC, Apple II, Commodore 64, NES Famicom, the MSX, uh, the PlayChoice 10, Uh, that was an arcade uh, game, a timed arcade game that Nintendo put out to uh, more or less advertise their game cartridges, Uh, Sega Saturn. Uh, as part of the IREM Arcade Classics Collection and the ZX Spectrum. The NES version was converted and published by Nintendo as Kung Fu in North America and the PAL region. It was also made for the 8-Big Game King console under the name Nagual. Uh, The arcade version was later included along with arcade versions of Ten Yard Fight and Zippy Race, in the IAC slash... Oh, the IREM Arcade Classics for the PlayStation Sega Saturn, released in Japan only in 1996 by IREM and IMAX. The arcade game was also released to cell phones. The Amstrad CPC and ZX Spectrum versions of the game were also included. On the 1986 compilation, they sold a million three along with fighter pilot, Ghostbusters, and Rambo. So, yes, that was uh, just a wonderful wonderful game um my thoughts on it let's 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 break it down uh the first time i played kung fu master it was in bolorama's game room uh as i've said before bolorama is bowling alley in the north part of my neighborhood uh, i used to go there uh, to i'd go there to play their games I can count the number of times I actually bowled at Bullerama on one hand <laughs> even though that bowling alley had been in existence long before I was born and until it closed down I think in 1990 um but yeah uh, this is one of those games that you know um at the time Mark was working my friend Mark as you, as you all know and he's also a listener what's up Mark um We were borderline obsessed with this game when uh, Bolarama got it. Uh, We were always competing pretty fiercely for the top high score spot on the machine. Um, Scores in the middle to upper 200,000s were common between the two of us. Um, I also remember playing it at a hotel in Washington, D.C. when my mother and I went to a family reunion in 1986 and all my distant cousins were amazed at how good I was. Um, I still play it in emulation today, and it's just as challenging now as it was back then. Um, One of my favorite fighting games of all time. (laughs) I may do a top 10 on fighting games, I may not. But we'll table that until a future episode. Anyway, so those are my experiences with the game and also information on it. So let's pivot right into time for some Scragity. What happened? Come on tactics, Mr. Ryland. Oh! I never should have doubted you, boy! There's a plan in everything, kid. And I love it when a plan comes together. Hey! It's about time for me to avoid a little tragedy. It's time for a tragedy, Kung Fu Master. Uh, these are my personal notes that I wrote for the game. Um They tie in with the Wikipedia information, but it basically gives you the bare bones of the game. I'm going to go into some detail here, so buckle in, because here we go. This is a five-stage game, with each stage more difficult than the last. Your attacks are simple. You have kicks, which are able to strike the enemy further away from you, but don't give as many points as punches do, which are close-in attacks. Kicks will gain you 100 points for the grabbers. and 200 points for the tom-toms that you will see starting on level 2. Punches score 200 points on the grabbers and 300 on the tom-toms. You can perform standing punches and kicks, foot foot sweeps and squatting reverse punches, flying kicks and flying punches. Uh, Each stage is on a timer, and if that timer reaches zero, you lose a life. You get your first free life at 50,000 points. Uh, Let's see. Stage 1. This is pretty straightforward. Uh, Your character is moving from right to left towards the end of the stage where the boss is waiting. Uh, Normal-sized opponents will come at you to grab at you and try to drain your health. If they do grab you, you diggle the joystick back and forth rapidly to break their hold. You hit them them with punches and kicks to your heart's content as they approach, but keep moving towards the left as you do so. Uh, Then at certain points in the stage, knife throwers and white will oppose you. The daggers that they hurl at you can hurt you a lot, so it's best to let them throw at you, evade the knife by ducking if they throw high or jumping over it if they throw low, then attack them. They take two hits to dispatch, and the score you yield depends on what you hit them them with on the last attack. Taking them out with a kick nets you 500 points, using a punch to defeat them is worth 800 points, and using a jump kick to defeat them will give you 1,000 points, but it is the riskiest method. Um, There have been more than a few times, especially in later stages, where the game can be cheap where they will throw a knife at you as you are button mashing to hit them with the second attack or hit you with a knife as you're jumping in the air to kick them into oblivion. Uh, Using foot sweeps is usually by far the safest method to take them out, even if you don't garner as many points for doing so. If you keep things moving, you should encounter two or three knife throwers before you reach the end of the stage. At the end of the stage, a man with a stick in his hand. Um, He does a lot of damage with that staff, so your best bet is to not even let him hit you. As you approach, press up and to the left on the stick to hit him with a flying kick, and you will land inside his reach up close and personal. Immediately squat down and repeatedly foot-sweep him. Most of the times, you will inflict enough damage to defeat him, especially if you connect with the initial flying kick. But if you miss that initial attack after hitting him with, I think, three foot-sweeps, stand up and immediately move back to the right to reset, then hit him with another jumping kick to finish him off. You get 2,000 points for defeating him and then you move on to the staircase behind him to finish the level. You get bonus points for your remaining health and for the time left on the timer and it's on to stage 2. Stage 2. You're moving from right to left for this level and it can be quite deadly if you tarry so it just pays to get to the end as quickly as possible. Green jars will fall from the ceiling and if you kick them and while in midair, you score 200 points. If they hit the ground, small lizards will come out, and they must be jumped over or you will suffer heavy damage. Now, yellow balls will fall to the floor, releasing dragons that breathe fire and can inflict close to half your health and damage. You can kick or punch the head of the dragon before they breathe for 2,000 points. Then finally, multicolored balls will hover in the air for a few seconds before detonating and throwing shrapnel in three directions, inflicting heavy damage as well. They can be jump kicked or jump punched for 1,000 points. And the longer you stay in this area, the more objects will fall from the sky, so while avoiding getting hurt, keep moving towards the right. Uh, Once you pass the third post, uh, grabbers and tom-toms will start coming after you. Dispatch them quickly to get to the end of the stage boss, which is a boomerang thrower. He can be ridiculously easy or frustratingly hard depending on the difficulty settings. Sometimes he will only throw one boomerang, sometimes he'll throw two. Avoid them coming at you. Run up to him and hit him hard and fast, and remember the boomerangs are coming back your way. Move quickly to the stairs to finish this level. Stage 3. Mostly, it's like Stage 1, just with Tom Toms added to the mix. Uh, Sometimes when you're squatting to deal with them, one might try to somersault and hit you on top of your head. When you see this, you let your character stand up, and that will defeat the attack and get you 400 points. And you deal with the knife throwers as quickly as possible, keep moving towards the left and you'll see the strong man at the end of the level. His attacks are slow, but they do a frightening amount of damage. He can kill your character with two attacks, three at the most, so you use your speed. The easiest way to beat him is to hit him with a jumping punch on the way in, then use squatting reverse punches until he's done. You get 4,000 points for defeating him, and then it's on to the hardest level of the game, in my opinion, stage four. This level has been my downfall more than the other four put together. Uh, You see square holes in the walls as you move from left to right. And from these holes come yellow butterflies with red wings. You can punch or kick them for 600 points apiece, but it requires precise timing as they move up and down as they fly towards you. It's best to evade them when you can and try to reach the fourth post as quickly as possible, which they will not go past. From there, it's grabbers and tom-toms and knife-throwers until you reach the boss, the flame throwing wizard. (laughs) This guy... Uh, Just even thinking about him gives me a little bit of agita. Um, This boss is annoyingly unpredictable. Um, As you approach him, he'll stop and hurl a fireball at you, most of the time at your head, so you need to be fast and duck it. Sometimes he will attack your midsection, so it pays to have as much life saved up as possible for this battle, because sometimes he will get cheesy and there's very little you can do about it but eat the damage. Um, His only vulnerable spot is his midsection, so you have to use squatting reverse punches to hit him. The problem is that he'll teleport a little bit away from you and throw another fireball. So the best way to defeat him is to back him up to the staircase and spam the punch button while he teleports out, then back in. Um, If you hit him twice, he teleports out, then he teleports back in. So the best thing to do is just button mash. (laughs) There's no other way. There's no better way to do it. And even when you're button mash, especially if you've gone through. Uh, the Devil's t- the devil's Temple once or twice. He'll actually just teleport back in and throw a fireball at you and hit you in the midsection and kill you while you're spamming the punch button. But, you know, that's later on in the game. Uh, let's see. Uh, other tactics he uses are hurling fireballs at the floor to generate lizards and dragons, like on stage 2. The worst one is, is when he clones himself. Um, when he clones himself, another image of himself appears behind you and sometimes he's that image or sometimes he is the image in front of you you know I've played the game so many times I've seen it both ways and it can be really really frustrating to deal with Uh, sometimes you're attacking the wrong image just long enough for him to kill you Uh, despite of all that if you can defeat him you gain 5000 points and it's on to the fifth stage Uh, let's see Getting through this stage is just like stages 1 and 3, but the grabbers and tom-toms are more aggressive. The knife-throwers can be cheesier than the entire state of Wisconsin. Um, Again, dispatch them as quickly as possible and keep moving from right to left, and you will meet the boss of this gang, Mr. X. Mark and I developed a way of beating him that takes time and requires a lot of precision. Um, Basically, you want to stand in front of Mr. X and repeatedly jump-kick him. He has high levels of defense, but if you vary your timing on the jump kick just a little, you'll catch him and hit him as he starts to attack you. Uh, The method we came up with uh, has no real guarantees, but it seemed to work better than trying to fight him straight up. Um, As a point of reference, I watched a guy on YouTube. um, I forget his name, but he put up over 500,000 points in a single game, And his method was to draw Mr. X out, get close to him, and attack him with a squatting reverse punch, uh, which would drive him back. Then you get up, move close, and and you just repeat that until you defeat him. Uh, You get 10,000 points for beating him, and you rescue your beloved Sylvia. Uh, The game continues from stage 1, but with higher levels of difficulty. Um, My personal best on this game was somewhere about 275,000, where I beat Mr. X twice, but I died for the final time on, you guessed it, stage four. (laughs) Yeah, that stage is just, yeah, that that stage can just really, really frustrate you if you don't get a move on. Uh, So yeah, those are my strategies and ways of getting good at uh, Kung Fu Master. If you have any thoughts, ideas, uh, systems of your own, get a hold of me, arcadeaticbryant at gmail.com. Okay, from then on, let's move to arcade review. Milford, Connecticut. Okay. <laughs> I wrote the I wrote out these notes a long time ago, so bear with me. Um, but to give you a quick primer as to what the arcade review is about, I give a criteria of an arcade based on five sub-criteria. Location, selection, ambiance, functionality, value. Um, location. Fairly self-explanatory. Is it easy to get to? Is it out in the stick somewhere? Are there major highways near it? You know, it does it take you longer than, take you say longer than half an hour to get to the place? Uh, when you're there, it does it have adequate parking? You know, do you have to, you know, figure something out when it comes to that? Um, you know, things like that. A uh, selection, pretty self-explanatory. Um, do they have a lot of games? Do they have a good cross-section of games? those two aren't exactly uh, part and parcel um, as I'm finding out as I'm going through going to these like barcades and small arcades in the Detroit area that they won't have a lot of machines but they'll have a great cross-section of machines you know ranging from you know the early days all the way up to you know late early you know mid to late 90s let's say and you know if a place has a really good cross section of games you know they get high points for me you know of course if they have a really good selection they have a lot of games there they'll get high points for that as well Amiyats. um once again it's for an arcade it's about the games but it's not just about the games you know what really makes an arcade is also the other things surrounding it uh, does it have, you know, cool art or old pinball back glasses? Do they have, um, music playing over the PA? And if it is, if you have a arcade that has mostly games from the classic era, the classic era, of course, being from 1978 until 1983, if you know, the majority of games is in that era, you should be playing music to, uh, also help you know to sort of help with immersion you know but you know i'll explain that another time because i've got my own feelings about it um like i said is there art are there pictures other things to draw the eye and help with the overall atmosphere also uh is the staff helpful friendly indifferent you know that kind of thing i mean i've been to places where uh, the ambiance is great there's plenty of stuff to look at there's good music playing from the uh, PA system but you know I've also taken off points and half points because you know half the time I'm in there the staff could, it looks like they could care less about you know anything going on in that arcade but that also goes in with uh, ambiance uh, functionality that's pretty self explanatory uh, do the games work Do they work well? Do they look halfway decent? They don't have to be like complete um, reconstructs, you know, where they're spending a whole lot of money on, you know, uh, fixing up the cabinet, um, you know, you know, doing the side art and things like that. But you know, because a game can look, you know, look like you know, you know, three kinds of hell. But if it plays good, it you know that will. I will forgive a game... I'll forgive a place for having games that don't look great, but they play wonderful. Um, Also, uh, when a game is down, how long does it take for it to get fixed? You know? And if a game is down, does it stay down for a long time before they get it fixed? And so forth and so on. Like I said, pretty straightforward. And lastly, is value. Um, You know, in the case of the arcades of my youth, um... The majority of them ran on tokens. Uh, most of them ran on quarters. Um, I usually start off every arcade with like a value rating of 5, and it goes up and down from there. Um, at least, that's how, I'm, that's how I should have done it when I thought of this. But either way. Um, yeah, I mean, does it run on quarters? Does it run on tokens? Um, does it run on both in the case of a, a barcade in this area? Um, do they have the free play option? um you know just things like that just how much money how much value do you get for the money you spend in that place and so forth and so on and of course you add all those up uh of course the, all these ratings are from 1 to 10 with half points coming into play and after that I add the scores together average them out by 5 and it comes up with a final score so we're now going to review you know one of my favorite arcades of all time Milford Rec and I tried really hard to be objective about it so here we go location six um I gave it the same rating as Connecticut Post Art Mall Arcade because they're within a mile of each other um the Connecticut Post Mall is right off the highway when you you know get off Interstate 95 um you have to head uh, east from the highway and Milford Rec was another mile up the street from uh, the Connecticut Post Mall, so I gave them the same rating. Um, Milford Rec was never easy to get to, you know, throughout my childhood and teenage years. Um, because it's on a major highway and it's with, you know, a, a mile, mile and a half east of Interstate 95, I have to kind of give it a above average rating because it's on a major highway and it's located to a major interstate. So I had to do that. Um, for me, It was never easy to get to. Um, I either had to take three buses, take a train, take uh, take a bus, a train, and then another bus to get out there, or more often rely upon the grace of others to get me there. Um, I can count the number of times I was able to go there by my auspices on two hands with a few fingers left over. Um, There were a few times where Um, I either went to Milford Rack after, uh, school in 1982, 83, when I was going to private school in Milford, but that was rare. (laughs) That was very rare. Usually I just, you know, went to the train station and, you know, got home, um, sometimes, If I felt like it, I skipped school and went straight to the mall, and then went to Milford Rec, spent a few dollars there, and then I would hightail it home from there once school let out. That's what I did. Okay, selection. I give that a straight-up 10. Um, As I said when I did the arcade review for this place, it was the mecca. It was the biggest and best arcade in the area. Um, There were a couple that sort of rivaled it, but... I mean, for sheer number of machines that they had and the ambiance of the place and the value of the place, nothing could quite touch Milford Wreck. I mean, um, from the machines ringing the pool tables to the middle section that had pinball machines and more games, then the main area off of that where more machines were, um, I'd say probably at the height of their powers, they had somewhere between 100 and 150 machines you know, it was, the place was just that big, and had that many machines, and it was almost perfect blends of older games, newer games, and the occasional game that you heard about, but you never saw, um, I always had fun when I went here, especially when I had money, you know, when I wasn't broke, okay, ambiance, 8.5, um, the owners of the place always seem seem to understand the atmosphere was just as important as the games were for an arcade. Um, they always had WPLR playing, which is a rock station in New Haven, that was playing over the PA. Uh, there were photographs, paintings, um, and all all sights, all sorts of accoutrements that made you think that you were at you know in the circus at the circus rather than an arcade and that helped with the place. It just made the place more special, in my opinion. Functionality, I give that 8.0. Um, of course, with Milford Rec being the largest arcade in the state and having hundreds, if not thousands, of people coming through the place every day, you know, machines were going to break down. But to their credit, they tried to take good care of their machines and they've succeeded for the most part. Um, machines that were out of order, they were never down very long. and usually the games that were up and running worked well. And if you uh, went to the front desk and you know reported a problem with the machine, uh, they would see what they could do to address it. And more often than not, if they found the problem that you that you had with the game, they give you a token and give your token back, which was cool. Okay, value 8.5. I could probably go higher here, but I think 8.5 is about right. Um, Milford Rec ran on tokens for the most part, and it was the leader in value, hands down. Um, most of the time, they would run five or six tokens for a dollar, and there was one time, I can't remember exactly when it was, I want to say it was like the summer of 83 or something like that, um, where they ran uh, it was either seven tokens for a dollar or it was eight. I think it was eight but i might be wrong It was either seven or eight but yeah when they ran that special the place was absolutely packed i think i went there one saturday night with uh mark and i saw they had that thing that going and i was i was just floored but yeah the place was jumping i mean we would get there we get to milford Rec probably about i'd say probably like nine o'clock maybe even ten and we would we would just basically stay until closing uh they would either be playing video games or playing pool i would be you know playing games or you know and walking the place the entire time and i when they had that special going yeah that place was packed all the way to closing <laughs> you know it was crazy um so you add all those up and you average them out and the total score is 8.3 um as i review the arcades of my youth i really been making an effort to be objective and not see things through rose-colored glasses, but when it comes to Mofa Rec, it's hard. It really is. Um, Without hyperbole, this was the premier arcade in the state, and if there's someone out there listening who was there during that time that could come up with a better arcade, contact me here and tell me, and I'll look into it. Just remember, um, Southern Connecticut, I I covered Southern Connecticut pretty well. You know, I knew I... Like I said, Trummel Mall Arcade was my home base. Spanky's was my home away from home. Um, let's see, uh, Arnie's Place in Westport, Milford Rec, of course, uh, Connecticut Post Mall Arcade, Gompers when it was open, um, and a couple other places that, uh, like Wizards Arcade, which was only around for about a year before it burned down. I know the majority of arcades in my in my area. And if there's one that was better than Milford Rack, I'd love to hear about it. But I doubt that there is. Um, I never went. I never got up to Hartford. I was only very rarely in New Haven or Waterbury. As a matter of fact, um, I was uh, reading a uh, thread on uh, the arcade, you know, an arcade game thread on Facebook, and someone was talking about the Danbury Mall arcade. And I wish I had known about that or been able to get up to Danbury to check it out. But yeah, I mean, there were arcades of plenty in my area, and I loved it. Um, I never went. Oh, I only got over to like the Groton, New London area uh, only a couple of times in my life. Um, <laughs> the the four times I was there, I think three of them were for uh, school trips. Uh, two in grade school and one in eighth grade. You know, so. Um, like I said, if there's a place that you think is better, I'll look into it, but I really doubt it'll hold a candle to the Moford Rack, and that's just how I feel about it. <laughs> if you feel differently, you know what to do. Arcade Addict Brian at gmail.com Okay, from there, from there, we will go into Home Systems. There's no place like home. Hey guys, I'm This is alligator. Shall we play a game? Love to. Screw you guys. I again? I'm going home. Okay. Home systems, the Nintendo Entertainment System. <laughs> yeah, this thing. This thing at at the same at least in my opinion and the way I feel about it at the exact same time the NES pretty much delivered a knockout blow to the arcades and completely revolutionized the home video game industry at the exact same time <laughs> well, that's just how i feel about it okay so uh let's see reading from wikipedia again uh let's see the nintendo entertainment system is a third eight-bit third generation home video game console produced released and marketed by nintendo it is a remodeled export version of the company's family computer platform in japan commonly known as the famicom which was launched in july 15 1983. the nes was launched in a test market of new york city on october 18, 1985 followed by los angeles as a second test market in february 1986 followed by chicago and san francisco then the other top 12 american markets followed by a full launch across north america and some countries in Europe in September 1986, followed by Australia and other countries in Europe in 1987. Brazil only saw unlicensed clones until the official release in 1993. Wow. Man, they were way behind the times. Uh, The console's South Korean release was packaged as the Hyundai Comboy. (laughs) That's a funny name. Uh, and And distributed by Hyundai Electronics now known as SK Hynix. Um, As one of the best-selling console games of of its time, the NES helped revitalize the U.S. video game industry following the video game crash of 1983. With the NES, Nintendo introduced a now-standard business model of licensing third-party developers, authorizing them to produce and distribute games for Nintendo's platform. It had been preceded by Nintendo's first home video game console, the Color TV Game, and was succeeded by the Super Super Nintendo Entertainment System. Let's see, following a series of arcade game successes in the early 1980s, Nintendo had made plans to create a cartridge-based console called the Famicom, which is short for Family Computer. Masayuki Uemura designed the system. Uh, original plans called for an advanced 16-bit system which would function as a full-fledged computer with a keyboard and a floppy disk drive, but nintendo president Hiroshi, Yama, not, uh, Hiroshi Yamauchi rejected this and instead decided to go for a cheaper, more conventional cartridge-based console as he believed features such as keyboards and disks were intimidating to non-technophiles. I wouldn't go that far. That would, be, that would have been really interesting. Just to go straight into 16-bit and... In, the early to mid 80s can you imagine that because we didn't start getting 16 bit uh games until the genesis came out in what 1987 87 or 88 so just imagine if nintendo had gone through with that that would have been interesting but anyway let's continue a test model was constructed in october 1982 to verify the functionality of the hardware after which work began on programming tools because the 65xx CPUs had not been manufactured or sold in Japan up to that time, no cross-develop soft excuse me no cross-development software was available, and it had to be produced from scratch. Early Famicom games were written on a system that ran on an NEC excuse me NEC PC8001 computer, and LEDs on a grid were used with a digitizer to design graphics, as no software design tools for this purpose existed at that time. So not only they're actually creating technologies as they're going. This is crazy. <laughs> uh, let's see. The code name for the project was Gamecom, but Masayuki Orimura's wife promote, proposed the name Famicom, arguing that in Japan, Pasacon is used to mean a personal computer, but is neither a home or personal computer. Perhaps we could say it's a family computer. <laughs> Smart. Uh, meanwhile, Yamauchi decided that the console should use a red and white theme after seeing a billboard for DX Antenna, a Japanese antenna manufacturer which used those colors. The creation of the Famicom was hugely influenced by the ColecoVision, Coleco's competition against the Atari 2600 in the United States. Takao Soano, Uh, Chief manager of the project brought a ColecoVision home to his family, who were impressed by the system's capability to produce smooth graphics at the time, which contrasted with the flicker and slowdown commonly seen on Atari 2600 games. Uemura, head of Famicom Development, stated that the ColecoVision set the bar for the Famicom. Yeah, I believe that. (laughs) The ColecoVision set the bar in a lot of ways. To continue... Uh, original plan called for the Famicom's cartridges to be the size of a cassette tape, but they ultimately ended up being twice as big. Careful design attention was paid to the cartridge connectors because loose and faulty connections often played arcade machines. Uh, as, it ne- as it necessitated 60 connection lines for the memory and expansion, Nintendo decided to produce its own connectors. Once again, you know, making, making and creating their own t- technology as they go. Impressive. Uh, The controllers are hardwired to the console with no connectors for cost reasons. The gamepad controllers were more or less copied directly from the Game & Watch machines, although the Famicom design team originally wanted to use arcade-style joysticks, even dismantling some from American game consoles to see how they worked. Uh, There were concerns regarding the durability of the joystick design, and that children might step on joysticks on the floor. (laughs) That's funny to me. Uh, Katsuya Nakawaka... Uh, attached a Game & Watch D-pad to the Famicom prototype and found that it was easy to use and caused no discomfort. Ultimately, though, they installed a 15-pin expansion port on the front of the console so that an optional arcade-style joystick could be used. Uh, Gunpei Yokoi suggested an eject lever up to the cartridge slot, which is not really necessary, but he believed that children could be entertained by pressing it. (laughs) Uemura adopted his idea. Or added a microphone to the second controller with the idea that it could be used to make players' voices sound through the TV speaker. Okay, moving on to the release. Uh, The console was released on July 15, 1983 as the Family Family Computer, or Famicom, for 14,800 yen, equivalent to 18,400 yen in 2019. Uh, Alongside three ports of Nintendo's successful arcade games Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong Jr., and Popeye. The Famicom was slow to gather more momentum. A bad chipset caused the initial release of the system to crash. Uh, uh, Let me redo that. Edit. A bad chipset caused caused the initial release of the system to crash. Following a product recall and a reissue with a new motherboard, the Famicom's popularity soared, becoming the best-selling game console in Japan by the end of 1984. Nintendo had also set its sights on the North American market, entering into negotiations with Atari to release the Famicom under Atari's name as the Nintendo Advanced Video Gaming System. Can you imagine what what would have happened if Atari signed, in on, signed off on this? Wow. I would dare say the crash might have been mitigated if that had happened, considering how good the NES games were even in the early 80s. Okay, to continue, the deal was set to be finalized and signed at the Summer Consumer Electronics show in June 1983. However, Atari discovered that at the show that its competitor Coleco was illegally demonstrating its Coleco Atom computer with Nintendo's Donkey Kong game. This violation of Atari's exclusive license with Nintendo to publish a game for its own computer systems delayed the implementation of Nintendo's game console marketing contract with Atari. Atari CEO Ray Kasser was fired next month, so the deal went nowhere, and Nintendo decided to market its system on its own. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. I just found... I, I can understand it from both sides, but yeah. Just imagine if Atari had signed off on this. They might have never gone under, considering how good the Nintendo games were at the time. But anyway, I continue. Subsequent plans for the Nintendo Advanced Video System were likewise never materialized. A North American repackaged Famicom console featuring a keyboard, cassette data recorder, wireless joystick controller, and a special BASIC cartridge. By the beginning of 1985, more than 2.5 million Famicom units had been sold in Japan, and Nintendo soon announced plans to release it in North America as the advanced video game entertainment system that same year. The American video game press was skeptical the console could have any success in the region, as the industry was still recovering from the video game crash of 1983. The March 1985 issue of Electronic Games Magazine stated that, quote, the video game market in America has virtually disappeared, end quote, and that this could be a miscalculation on Nintendo's part. Well, thank God they never listened to him. (laughs) That's for sure. Okay. At June 1985 CES, uh, Nintendo unveiled the American version of its Famicom with a new case redesigned by Lance Barr, featuring a zero insertion for its cartridge slot. This. The change from a top loader in the Famicom to a front loader was to make the new console more like a video cassette recorder which had grown in popularity by 1985 and to differentiate the unit from past video game consoles. This would eventually be deployed as the Nintendo Entertainment System or the Colloquial NES. Nintendo seeded these first systems to limited American test markets, starting in New York City on October 18, 1985 followed up with a full North American release in February 1986 now I'm going to I'm gonna stop there because yes I remember NES's people having them in my area in 1985 Um, be you know I'm from Bridgeport Connecticut which is only a a 60-minute drive from New York City so I think my area was also part of the test market not only that they were in stores in Christmas 1985, I do remember that. Okay, to continue, the nationwide release of came in September 1986. Uh, Nintendo released 17 launch games: Ten Yard Fight, Baseball, Clue Clue Land, Duck Hunt, Excite Bike, Golf, Gyromite, Hogan's Alley, Ice Climber, Kung Fu, Mock Rider, Pinball, Stack Up, Super Mario Brothers, Tennis, Wild Gunman, and Wrecking Crew. For expedient production, some varieties of these launch games contained Famicom chips with an adapter inside the cartridge so that they played on North American consoles, which is why the title screens of Gyromite and StackUp have Famicom titles, Robot Gyro, and Robot Block, respectively. The, game, the system's launch represented not only a new product, but also a reframing of the severely damaged home video game market. The 1983 video game crash had occurred in large part due to a lack of consumer retail confidence in video games, which had been partially due to the confusion and misrepresentation in video game marketing. Prior to the NES, the packaging of many video games presented bombastic artwork, which exaggerated the graphics of the actual game. In terms of product identity, a single game such as Pac-Man would appear in many versions on many different game consoles and computers, with large variations in graphics, sound, and general quality between the versions. In stark contrast, Nintendo's marketing strategy aimed to regain consumer and retailer confidence by delivering a singular platform whose technology was not in need of exaggeration and whose qualities were clearly defined. Which was a very smart move on their part. I mean, very smart. I mean... I remember seeing the uh, NES games when they came out, and it they had basically uh, the character, the main character in a game. Let's say it's like Super Mario Brothers. Of course, it's Mario jumping, and then you see a picture of the actual, more or less the, and slightly stylized version of the uh, video, the screen that the actual game it, it came from, which was actually pretty cool. Okay. Uh, Let's see, to differentiate Nintendo's new home platform from the perception of a troubled and shallow video game market still reeling from the crash, the company freshens its product nomenclature and establishes a strict product approval and licensing policy. Uh, The overall platform is referred to as entertainment system instead of a video game system, is centered upon a machine called a control deck instead of a console, and featured software cartridges called game packs instead of video games. Again, smart. <laughs> this allowed Nintendo to gain more traction in selling a system in toy stores, which was another brilliant move. Because I remember that, um, even in like later years, going like say eighty-seven, eighty-eight, every the mall, my local mall, had two toy stores in it, KB Toy Stores, and then later on there was another one with, whose name escapes me. Um, both of them had. They would put uh, Nintendo Entertainment System game packs in the windows to get people to come in, you know, which was of course a pretty strong selling point by that time. Uh, let's see. To deter, to, to deter pro- production of games which had not been licensed by Nintendo and to prevent copying, the 10 NES Lockout Chip System Act as a lock and key, coupling each game pack and control deck. The packaging of the launch lineup of NES games bears pictures of close representations of actual on-screen graphics, like I said. To reduce customer confusion, symbols on the game's packaging clearly indicated the genre of the game. A seal of quality is on all licensed game and accessory packaging. The initial seal states, quote, this seal is your assurance that Nintendo has approved and guaranteed the quality of this product, end quote. This text was later changed to the official Nintendo seal of quality. Unlike with the Famicom, Nintendo of America marketed the console primarily to children, instituting a strict policy censoring profanity, sexual, religious, or political content. The most famous example is Lucasfilm's attempt to port the comedy horror game Maniac Mansion to the NES, which Nintendo insisted be considerably watered down. Nintendo of America continued this censorship policy until 1994 with the advent of the Entertainment Software Rating Board System, coinciding with criticisms stemming from cuts made to the Super NES port of Mortal Kombat compared to the Sega Genesis version. Oh, let's see. Oh, let's see. For its complete North American release, the NES was progressively released over the ensuing years in several different bundles, beginning with the Deluxe Set, Basic Set, action set and the power set. The deluxe set retailing at $179.99 included the robot operating buddy or Rob, a light gun called the NES Zapper, two controllers, and two game packs Gyromite and Duck Hunt. The basic set first released in 1987 retailed at $89.99 with no game and $99.99 bundled with the Super Mario Brothers cartridge. The action set, retailing in November 1988 for $149.99, came with the control deck, two game controllers, an NES zapper, and a dual game pack containing both Super Mario Bros. and Duck Hunt. In 1989, the power set included the console, two game controllers, a zapper, a power pad, and a triple game pack containing Super Mario Bros., Duck Hunt, and World Class Track Meet. (laughs) Their version of Track and Field, I'm sure. Uh, Let's see, in 1990, a sports set bundle was released, including the console, an NES satellite infrared wireless multi-tap adapter, four game controllers, and a dual-pack game containing Super Spike V-Ball and Nintendo World Cup. Uh, Two more bundle packages were later released using the original NES console. The challenge set of 1992 included the console, two controllers, Super Mario Bros. 3 Game Pack for a retail price of $89.99. The basic set was repack- repackaged for, a, uh, for also for $89.99, it included only the console and two controllers, and was no longer bundled with a cartridge. Instead, it contained a book called the Official Nintendo Player's Guide, which contained detailed information for every NES game made up to that point. Finally, the console was redesigned for both the North American and Japanese markets as, far to, as part of the final Nintendo release bundle package. This package includes a new style NES 101 console and one redesigned Dogbone Game Controller. Released in October nineteen ninety-three in North America, this final bundle retails for $49.99 and remained in production until the discontinuation of the NES in nineteen ninety five. On august fourteenth, that was when it was discontinued. Uh, in both US and excuse me, North America and Europe. The Familycom was officially discontinued in september two thousand three. Uh, Nintendo offered repair services for the Famicom in Japan until 2007, when it was discontinued due to a shortage of available parts. So, yeah. I mean, there's a lot more information regarding the NES. I could go into all of it, but I'm not going to. (laughs) My voice will give out somewhere halfway into it. (laughs) Um, But that's the meat and bones of it. Uh, They have pictures... Uh, with the NES, well, the 101 control deck with the dogbone controller, it looks more like an, an, a Super Nintendo controller, and you know it's it, it's interesting. Um, like I said, you know this is this game. <laughs> oh, excuse me, this system I should say was a game changer. To, <laughs> you know, no pun intended, or maybe even slightly intended. Uh, the entire video gaming gaming landscape changed when it came out. Uh, a lot of people got this system when it first came out in my area in 1985, and then once the good games started coming out, is a tidal wave that just would not stop until the Sega Genesis, yeah. the Sega Genesis came out in 1989, and even then it kept right on going until a couple of years after the Super Nintendo system came out in 1991 uh, the majority of the games were great, more of the, more than a few of them are all-time classics, um, I was never get one, never able to get one myself, um, as money was a bit of an issue, you know, through the middle 80s, <laughs> um, but it was a point of pride, uh, to have someone who had in, someone in my neighborhood to have one, um, my next-door neighbors, the Lloyds, they got one. I'm trying to remember when they had it. I think it was, I want to say it was, like, right around 1987, maybe even... No, I'd say 87. I'd probably have to ask, uh, like, uh, Kirk Lloyd, who I grew up with, and a couple of the other Lloyd family who are all on Facebook. Uh, I'm going to get a hold of them and and ask them when they got it, because I think it was 1987. I could be wrong. Um... Let's see. Yeah. I mean, my experiences were more playing these games in at friends' houses. Um let's see, you know, my friend Mark had one, my next-door neighbor and my my best friend growing up whose name is also Mark, may he rest in peace, he had one. Um my friend uh my friend my friend Pac-Man had one. You know, yeah, that's that's what his name was for reasons I won't go into. Um yeah, he had one. Um, there were a couple more kids in my neighborhood who had one. And I can't think of their names right now. Um, but, yeah, I mean, as the 80s went through and started to draw to a close, yeah, this was the system to have um, until the Genesis came out. In, I think it was eighty. I think it was 88 or 89, somewhere in there. i got to look it up. But I will cover the Sega Genesis in this segment in a future episode, so stay tuned. Yeah. Um, my serious NES playing did not start until uh, my local mall got a Nintendo kiosk in uh, 1990, and I'll cover that in an in episode of Storytime, so stay tuned for that as well. So, yeah, that's Home Systems, the Nintendo Entertainment System. Um, if you have, you know, stories, did you own one? If you, And if you did own one, you know, what games did you get? How much did you like? How much did you love it? You know, and did you, you know... What kind, you know, like I said, what kind of experiences did you have? Of course, everyone knows about the blowing on the cartridges thing because everybody did it, including myself. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, if you got something, you know, to, to say about it, positive, negative, or indifferent, get a hold of me, Brian at gmail.com. Okay, and that's episode 21 in a nutshell. So until next time, when we cover episode 22 And I'll give you a little bit of a heads up right now. Uh, We are going to cover top tens. Uh, We're going to, we got another Are You Experienced in Time for Some Strategy. And also we have an On the Road segment. So until next time, this is Brian saying have fun out there, good gaming, au revoir. This has been the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. All music has been provided by Kevin McLeod. You can find his music at incompetech.com. You can contact the show by email at arcadeaddictbryan at gmail.com or you can call and leave a voicemail at 734-743-2433. Until next time, you have been listening to the Confessions of the Arcade Addict podcast. See you then.